Blog Talk Radio. having you with us and listening to our favorite way to fly, Eastern Airlines. Now in our ninth year, the Eastern Airlines radio show continues strong and around the world. That's right. Some 50 plus countries have been identified tuning their computer to our broadcast. Just this past week, listeners from Croatia, Sri Lanka, Philippines, the Netherlands turned us on. Turned us on or tuned us in. Thanks to the listeners in these countries and many others that listen to us uh, regularly. We're glad to tell you that the familiar logo of Eastern Airlines will be on planes flying the skies around the world. And and, uh, we call it version 3.0. Don't know whether we'll be able to get any news tonight about uh, what's happening over there. But We can truly say that we're the radio voice of Eastern Airlines, and my name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show, and along with hosts from many different areas in the U.S., we say welcome to our Eastern world. Now let's get the show rolling. Chuck Albright is our announcer, and he will introduce to the rest of the hosts. Chuck, it's all yours. Thank you very much. Hello, Eastern family and friends. As our producer said, we're glad you're with us for more Eastern talk, news, and information. After all, you're the lady listening radio of the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. Our hosts for tonight include Don and Dorothy Gagnon, Jim and Carrie Holder, Mike Scott, Mark Holder, and yours truly, Chuck Albright. And we're very glad tonight that George Jen, one of our hosts, and he'll be a special guest with us tonight. Thanks to all who come and participate on our show, and we have a special thank you for Jim Hart. He checked in with us today, and he's doing quite well, so we're probably going to be seeing him in a short while. If you haven't called a show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611. Just say hello. Talk to us on the air. Live every Monday evening. Now, let me repeat that number, 213-816-1611. 
Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.easternairlinesshow.com or perhaps by signing in on the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Remember now to abbreviate the word Captain to C-A-P-T. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We're now up to 1,038 Eastern family and friends on our website. And that will be holy blue Sunoco, as Jim Hart would say. Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with our host, we ask you to please mute your phone, as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noise. Now, I see we're number one for takeoff, so Captain, let's get flight 452 in the air. Tower Blur is 650, Remember the song we just played as the Academy Award-winning song in the film starring John Wayne in 1954, The High and the Mighty. Beautiful song, one winning the Academy Award for that year. The title may have some meaning in tonight's discussion, the Eastern Airlines radio show hosts and guests, and we'll, that 
we will be examining what prompted airline deregulation 42 years ago, what were the objectives of that deregulation, and how were they achieved? In the 1960s and 70s, the Civil Aeronautics Board set strict regulations for the airline industry. It managed routes and set fares in return. It guaranteed a 12% profit for any flight that was at least 50% full. As a result of these and other controls, airline travel was prohibitively expensive. According to the Airlines for America Trade Associations, by 1977, only 63% of Americans had ever flown. It also took a long time for the board to approve new routes or any other changes. On October 24, 1978, the Airline Deregulation Act was designed to solve this problem. Safety was the only part of the industry that remained regulated. Competition rose, fares dropped, and more people took to the skies. Over time, many companies could no longer compete. They either were merged, acquired, or went bankrupt. As a result, just four airlines controlled 70 or 85% of the U.S. market, American, Delta, United, and Southwest. Deregulation has created a near monopoly. Deregulation has created new problems. First, small and even mid-sized cities such as Pittsburgh and Cincinnati are underserved. It's just not cost-effective for the major airlines to keep a full schedule. Smaller carriers serve these cities at a higher cost and less frequently. Second, airline, second uh, airlines charge for things that used to be free, such as ticket changes, meals, and luggage. And flying itself has become miserable, a miserable experience. Customers suffer from cramped seating, crowded flights, and long waits. Now, let's go into the history and the pros and cons we hope we can bring out tonight. How about getting us started, Carrie? Okay, Neil. In 2020, we celebrate 42 years of airline deregulation in the United States. Coincidentally, we can also commemorate 82 years of airline regulation and 62 years of airline re-regulation. In 1938, when the Civil Aeronautics Act was passed, there were 16 trunk airlines in the United States. Trunk was a generic name for the common carriers that provided scheduled national and international air service. Government assistance through protection subsidy, promotion, and regulation was thought to be necessary to permit the new industry to develop. For example, at that time, the railroads were still the dominant form of both passenger and freight transportation. So railroads, now get this, were specifically forbidden to have a financial interest in an airline. The fear was that the then very rich and powerful railroads would smother the competition from the fledgling airline industry. Just as decades before in the Panama Canal Act, the railroads were forbidden to have an interest in competing passenger and cargo ships for fear that the railroads would start cutthroat competition on the high seas for traffic between east and west coasts of the United States, thereby dooming the viability of the Panama Canal. 
Don? Well, Carrie, Congress created a new government agency called the Civil Aeronautics Authority, or the CAA, to regulate air carriers the same way that the Interstate Commerce Commission had regulated service carriers since 1890, that is, as if they were public utilities. The CAA was authorized to issue certificates to provide air service between specific points and to approve all fares and schedules. Years later, in 1958, Congress brought air carrier regulation into the post-war world, a world where aviation was already a giant industry in the United States. Coincidentally, 1958 was also the beginning of the jet era, which was soon to change the game. But in the Federal Aviation Agency Act of 1958, the Congress essentially repainted the plastic flowers of the existing public utility-type regulation regime, changed the name of the CAA to the, to the Civil Aeronautics Board, or CAB, and hoped that the carriers would flourish in their gridlocked and padlocked garden. Don, 20 years later, by 1978, six of the original 16 trunk lines were history, and no new trunk line had been allowed to come into existence. The 10 that had survived accounted for 90% of the air carrier market. In 1978, the supersonic commercial jet era was two years old. Concordia flights between Europe and the United States had begun in 1976. But the CAB, or CAB, Machinery of Airline Regulation, had slowed to the pace of a horse and buggy bureaucracy. Meanwhile, the energy crisis of 1973-1974 had also changed the economics of air transportation, and in 1974, had doused the U.S. airlines in a bath of red ink, 100 million, a, bill, a big number in 1974. The Ford administration was already working on an airline deregulation proposal. The invitation from Senator Ted Kennedy to testify on the subject before his Judiciary Committee subcommittee on administrative practice and procedure was a welcome opportunity to float the administration's deregulation views in a friendly forum. In preference to the Aviation Subcommittee of the Senate Commerce Committee, which was the most more appropriate forum to consider such issues. While it was also known that Senator Howard Cannon was very suspicious of airline deregulation, and he would be upset with having Ted Kennedy setting up wickets to play on his pitch. To be allowed to use that favorable forum, Senator Kennedy's subcommittee therefore required considerable debate at the White House. President Ford himself had to give the green light before he was because he was concerned about offending his old friend, Senator Cannon, who had long been Mr. Aviation in the Congress. The White House debated showing that former minority leader Jerry Ford was a truly creature of the Congress. Dorothy, here were some factors for deregulation, and more specifically, 
that brought the concept of airline deregulation to a boil in the mid-1970s and to fruition in 1978. Rising airline fares or airline prices. The sharply cost of airline tickets was increasing concern to the public, and the lack of fare flexibility was a growing concern both to the Nunskate and the charter carriers and the U.S. Department of Transportation. Ironically, the inability to raise prices easily was also a matter of growing concern to the trunk airlines, which had begun losing money. DWA and Pan Am were hemorrhaging and had even been talking about a merger. In those days, the airlines were regulated as if and on the theory that they were public utilities. Every single fare had to be approved by the CAB, and the CAB regulated fares on the basis that an airline was entitled to a 12% return on investment. Not bad, unless you had to pay such a cost plus fare. But how would the CAB determine what fare would return 12% of the airline's investment? That's a good question. After squabbling over how to measure carrier investment, the CAB would assume that the airline would fill 55% of its seats at the pool fare, and it would also assume that the aircraft still had the same number of seats that it came with. Those numbers were all over the map because of peculiarities and inefficiencies of rough structure long lost, locked in concrete. Of course, in those days, airlines were experimenting with taking out seats in order to accommodate for example, a piano bar, because in-flight services and amenities was the only way that the airline could, but the CAB, nevertheless, they just assumed that the original seats were still there for the purposes of calculating ROI, and that stands for return on investment. Mike? Yes, Jim. In the 1960s, some airlines had succeeded in obtaining approval for a variety of discount fares strictly limited, to be sure. Do you remember the youth fares? In the, by 1970, discount fares also di- were history. When United Airlines and American Airlines and TWA next proposed discount fares, the CAB in early January 1975 promptly suspended all the discount fares because United had proposed them in all of its markets. Senator Cannon was already indignant uh, with the CAB when he announced that the hearings, uh, this bill uh, in his aviation subcommittee that he had from the CAB. Shortly after Senator Kennedy actually started his hearings in February, Senator Kennedy had announced in the previous November that he was interested in studying airline regulation. In fact, there was by then a widespread unhappiness with routine inability to persuade the CAB to liberalize fair regulation or go on to experiment more boldly with TGC, TGC, Travel Group Charters, and with AGC, which was the uh, Affinity Group Charters. Indeed, the CAB proposed to eliminate affinity charters at the time when they were accounting for 40% of the domestic traffic, 54% of the U.S. international traffic, and 80% of the supplemental airlines traffic. Instead, the CAB proposal substituted more constricted advanced booking charters, ABCs, 
and the ABC also refused to liberalize inclusive TCIs, the Tour, in, tour Charters in, uh, Incorporated, I think that was, uh, which the CB, CAB first approved in 1966. You had to make three stops, stay two weeks, and pay a minimum of 110% of the published airfare for the entire route. It should be it should be noted that at the time of such uh, liberal ITCs were the bread and butter of the uh, uh, the charters and jam of the UK European charter industry, and there was also had been a uh, brouhaha over the OTCs one-stop inclusive charter tours ITC again. Only reluctantly did the CAB give up the concept that in any of these charter fares, each charter passenger had to pay the equal share of the full cost of the charter instead of a fixed price for his ticket. Thus, if someone canceled at least one minute and the charter had not actually received the passenger's money or could not find a replacement, the fare for everybody else on the charter went up. This is a good example of how excessive regulation had been crippling our air carriers in the marketplace. George? Yeah, Mike. Um, You know, it seems to me, just hearing what you just read, that the problem probably uh, was lied with the CAB rather than the airlines themselves. But that's that's another another discussion for another time. But um, there was also difficulty in starting a new airline before 1978. The second and third factors prompting, which were the second and third factors prompting deregulations, which were two entirely different types of entry. First, there was the difficulty or inability to get into the trunk airline business at all. The CAB did not admit any new trunk carrier after 1938. But by 1975, there were eight regional service carriers some quite large, for example, Frontier, and there were 10 supplementals, a few interstate interstate carriers in Texas and California, and a number of air taxis. But when, for example, World Airlines, a charter airline, applied in 1967 to fly a scheduled service between New York and Los Angeles at low prices, the CAB, quote, studied, unquote, the matter for six and a half years and then dismissed the application because by that time the record was stale. Secondly, even if you were a member of the club, there was a difficulty to obtain CAB approval for a new route. At the same time, under CAB regulation, an air carrier that wanted to deploy its assets more efficiently would have difficulty obtaining CAB authority to abandon a route. As an example of the difficulty of securing approval of a new route, Continental had to wait approximately eight years to add San Diego to Denver to its system and finally succeeded only because the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals told the CAB they had to grant the authority. In another case, Federal Express sought CAB authority to use an existing exemption to fly a larger cargo plane on its busiest routes. FedEx had been able to enter the air cargo business by using the CAB exemption for small planes. Uh, If you recall, they were using, uh, I believe, Falcon jets to fly checks around at night. That was what their original business was. Uh, 
And when Fred Smith's business took off, he found he had to fly two small jets wing to wing between Memphis and his busiest markets in order to carry his increasing loads. He sought authority under the same exemption to fly one larger jet instead of two small ones. And the CAB said no. Fred Smith then went directly to Congress with a landmark postcard postcard write-in campaign. Alfred Kahn, our good old buddy, found himself testifying before a House subcommittee on government operations to hedge the administration's position on cargo deregulation because at the Madison Hotel in Washington on the night before, he had not been able to persuade Joe Healy and Wayne Hoffman of Flying Tigers, at the time the largest all-cargo air carrier, that air cargo deregulation was in their interest. Because of the very short notice of the hearings, Kahn had been authorized to promote all-cargo deregulation at the hearing only if he could get the politically powerful Flying Tigers on board. Carrie? George, ironically, when air cargo deregulation went into effect as of January 1st, 1979, a year ahead of passenger deregulation, FedEx and Flying Tigers were both grandfathered into the new system, where a year later the only test for new entry would be fit, willing, and able. And both made a killing in the deregulated air cargo environment. And then, of course, Tigers swallowed Seaboard World Airlines, and then FedEx swallowed the Tiger. Meanwhile, Airborne and Emory and DHL and finally UPS all jumped into the air and so on. The fruits of cargo deregulation. There were there was indeed an informal moratorium on route entry after 1969. The legal problem with entry into the airline business or onto a particular route was very simple. At an incumbent truck Trump airline lawyers dream of a slam dunk. The applicant for authority to add a route to its system had the burden of proving not only that the carrier was fit, willing, and able, but also that the applicant's service on the city pair was required by the public convenience and necessity, or PCN. But if the addition of the applicant to the city pair would hurt a carrier already serving the route, and how could it not, the new entry was clearly not required by PCNN. Indeed, in the CAB's view, it was contrary to PCN. That criterion was an injury to a comp- competitor test, not an injury to competition test. Mike? Yes, Carrie. The fourth factor promoting at least re-regulation, if not complete deregulation, was the very significant delays at the CAB. During public debate on airline deregulation, the opponents of the revised law said that the CAB, led by John Robeson uh, in the later Ford years, and then by Fred Kahn in the Carter years, could accelerate decision-making and could relax pricing and, and entry standards. Robeson's and Kahn both were affected effective uh, proponents in deregulation, but their power to affect real charge was limited by the statute and by the court's precedents and by bureaucracy. Fortunately, disingenuous and diversionary tactics to let the CAB do it did not seduce any of the congressional decision makers once the case was substantially deregulated had, had been made. 
The fifth separate factor prompting deregulation was the simple fact that the planes were flying only half full. In 1974 and 75, the load factors on the trunks were 55.4% and 53%, respectively. The load factors on transcontinental routes were at 40%. If load factors rose to those routes, for those on those routes, the charters would add more flights in the hope that obtaining a larger market share by virtue of greater frequencies, by more, by more frequencies. Most airline executives protested this in order to provide satisfactory service. 50% plus was all the seats that they needed to fill. To the airlines with their cost plus mentality, satisfactory service meant permitting anyone who wanted to get on a flight would be able to do so. Penalties for no-shows had proven a failure. The late Charlie Tinglehask, then chairman of TWA and an articulate opponent in deregulation, was honest enough to admit that he could provide an acceptable level of service with, 65, with a 65% load factor. He was almost alone in the industry, but the economists and the public knew that people would be paying fancy fixed prices for one seat in order to have the seat next to him, or statistically, more accurately, uh, nine-tenths of the next seat vacant all the time. Although we may appreciate having an empty seat next to us to put our papers or not to have to scrunch into an economy seat next to a sumo wrestler, that most travelers would prefer to fly on a fuller plane and pay a less price. Oh, thanks, Mike. In any event, the politicians and the public alike had already seen that satisfactory service with fuller capacity could be achieved through charter and non-scheduled air carrier service and by the interstate carriers, PSA and Southwest. The CAB didn't seem to care. Fares were predicated on the CAB's assumption artificial, artic, artificial 55% load factor. Hmm. This is not to say that the airlines today have an entirely satisfa satisfactory system for filling up their seats or for solving their overbooking problems. The low load factors in the 1970s and the industry's reluctance or inability to do anything about it while prices were rising with a stimulant into airline deregulation. And finally, the well-publicized success of a few interstate carriers like PSA and Southwest that were not regulated by the CAB and were selling seats for much less than the CAB-regulated competition Lamar Moose of Southwest proved he could provide satisfactory service and make money, at least in certain markets, with fares that were half, the, half that of the competition <clears throat> Excuse me, until the competition had to lower its fares. Lamar used to say, quote, you spell competition, P-R-I-C-E, price. In 1975, a year after the Airline Transport Authority proficiency of the beginning of the end, the ATA uh, told Senator Kennedy that the result of the legislation he was proposing would be the termination of 272 nonstop trunk routes, 
plus 826 subsidized routes of regional carriers that the 1,267 non-subsidized routes of regionals were at risk and that federal subsidies cost would rise from $70 million per year to more than $1 billion per year. <clears throat> Excuse me. The wolf was at the front door. There would be indeed an outgoing problem with service to smaller communities, but it never assumed the proportions that the ATA threatened. Instead, a whole new family of carriers, the commuters, came into existence. Boy, they sure did. Jim? Yeah, Don, in retrospect, it looks obvious something had to be done before fares went through the roof and before carriers sank to the point where they could not earn the money to finance the new airplanes that they needed or refit the planes they already had in order to meet new NORS requirements. Remember that? That could indeed be a factor prompting deregulation, the need to be able to finance the reduction of aircraft noise at airports which could be only achieved, achieved by more efficient use of air carry assets. Neither the Ford nor the Carter administration nor the Congress were willing to have the public pay the bill for retrofitting the air carrier fleet. So this was an added reason for shaking up economic re-regulation of the airlines to keep them healthy. And then, even more gradually, some of the airlines, Bob Six of Continental was an early convert, he objected to United's Hawaii routes being protected when AME, automatic market entry, was on the table. One route a year for two years, then two routes for three years. The little guys could protect certain routes. It was like the baseball draft. Bill Sewell of Pan Am became a convert because he saw the possibility of obtaining domestic routes. Failure to develop when subsequently contributed to Pan Am's demise, when in the deregulated arena, all the other majors could start jumping the pedals. I guess that means flying overseas. Don Nyto, at a super cost-conscious Northwest, could succeed either way. Northwest break-even load factors in those days was 16% below United's, 43% against 59%. But, Almost all of the airlines were violently opposed to deregulation. Al Casey and later Bob Crandall in America and Ed Colondity, then in Allegheny, were among the most articulate and vociferous. And yet they were the biggest winners when deregulation came to pass. Eastern's Frank Borman, who went down with the ship. The TWA and Delta economist Dick Farrell of United was even left adamant. Most airlines were largely comfortable with its status quo structure. If so, you have to pay more of the pilots more, you just raise prices. They argued they would not be able to finance new aircraft because their route certificates would lose their economic, you can call that monopoly, value if anyone could start up service on their routes. Similarly, many airports were afraid they would no longer be able to sell revenue bonds to the soon-to-be destitute airlines if the airlines lost their security blanket. Smaller cities feared loss of truck line, truck airline service. The financial community was nervous, both in its role as financiers, the carriers, and as investors. 
and the unions. The unions feared both pressure on their pay scale if fares were no longer cost plus, and even worse, the prospect of non-union airlines. Dorothy? Yes, Jim. Everybody opposed to deregulation said that the airline safety would suffer. That was a hard argument to handle and obviously a very important consideration. How could you know or prove that airlines that were going to have to be more cost-conscious would not skimp or maintenance as competition increased and there was downward pressure on fares? Was the FAA up to the job? Safety was and is and always will be a tough issue. Could the FAA keep the industry flying straight and level? As pilots say, the aviation community puts the good of aviation first and the economic well-being of their employers second. And the good of aviation requires zero tolerance for accidents, however optimistic or unrealistic that goal may be. And so, to jump ahead, what happened in 1978 was a public utility type of passenger airline economic regulation was eliminated almost entirely. Uh, They phased out over time. The freedom to raise and lower fares and to enter and leave markets met the first three objectives that have been described, price and flexibility and ease of industry and market entry the transfer of the few remaining cab regulatory authorities to DOT met objectives four and five regulatory delays and authority to immunize anti-competitive agreements. With all the foregoing, it was inevitable that the planes would be fuller and that the interstate carriers would be on an equal footing with PSA and Southwest. And Congress was right and the ATA was wrong. The industry had not only survived, but also thrived in many of the 42 years since deregulation. And an even less debatable result, more of the public is flying for less, much less than before 1978. Now, the material used in tonight's broadcast was written by John W. Barnum, General Counsel, Undersecretary Undersecretary and Deputy Secretary of the Department of Transportation from 1971 to 1978. Chuck? And to bring history, we present in tonight's radio show to a conclusion that are these highlights. The United States Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 was a dramatic event in the history of economic policy. It was the first, though, dismantling of a comprehensive system of government control since the Supreme Court declared the National Recovery Act unconstitutional in 1935. It also was part of a broader movement that, with varying degrees of thoughtfulness, transformed such industries as the trucking, railroads, bus, cable television, stock exchange brokerage, oil and gas, telecommunications, uh, financial markets, and even some local electric and gas companies. Most disinterested observers agreed that airline deregulation 
has been a success. The overwhelming majority of travelers have enjoyed the benefits that it proponents expected. Deregulation was also given rise to a number of problems, including congestion and a limited reemergence of monopoly power and with it, exploitation of minorities or customers. It would be a mistake, however, to regard these developments merely as failures of deregulation. In important measures, they were manifestations of its success. Mr. Producer, if you please. Thanks, guys. Uh, very interesting. And our guest tonight has been a host of, of the radio show for several years and has asked to share his opinion about deregulation of the airline industry because Captain George Jen um, has, uh, I think, met and talked with several of the people that we talked about tonight. Captain George, welcome back, and we want to uh, hear what you would like to say about tonight's topic. I understand you have some thoughts of your own. The microphone is all yours, George. Okay, thank you, Neil. Uh, First of all, I'd like to comment on the uh, uh, quote up above that the material used in tonight's broadcast was written by John W. Barnum, who was the general counsel, undersecretary, and deputy secretary of the Department of Transportation from uh, 1971 to 1978. I wonder if Mr. Barnum uh, uh, would appreciate if his job was uh, deregulated out of business. You know, all these attorneys, they like to talk big. But when push comes to shove, you know, they have theirs, and that's really all that they care about. And I would definitely address that statement to Mr. Barnum. But in any effect, um, in, back in 1978, I believe Jim was also, I was a member of the uh, Eastern MEC at the time. And uh, during that year's uh, board of directors meeting, which was held in Miami, I, I addressed the board and, and suggested very strongly that we, the Airline Pilots Association, should conduct a nationwide stoppage of service uh, in order to prevent deregulation from becoming the law of the land. And the reason why I had suggested that, and by the way, I was called a young radical, I was young back then, and uh, practically booed off the podium. Um, (laughs) But the reason why I suggested that was when you looked in depth at the airline cost structure Every airline, whether it be a new airline or or one of the established uh, what they call legacy carriers, all their costs were pretty much the same, with the exception of labor, which isn't even mentioned in Mr. Uh, Barnum's uh, spiel up on top here. And um, so it didn't take a rocket scientist or a Ph.D. to see that the the airlines would be quibbling or squawking quarreling with each other over airline labor costs, which would equate to less money, uh, more days work, uh, worse working conditions, less retirement um, for airline employees, which, of course, as we know, has come about where every every uh, every major airline uh, has done away with their defined benefit retirement plan for their employees. That's just one example. So uh, I personally met with... Uh, Mr. Kennedy's, uh, uh, one of his top aides down in Washington, and, and tried to explain this to him. Um, but, you know, the, the, the response that I got was, 
more like, don't confuse me with the facts because my mind is made up. Uh, perhaps I should have uh, suggested that Mr. Kennedy take uh, driving instructions, especially near the water, instead of uh, mm. talking about airline deregulation. <laughs> but yeah. in any case, uh, at the time, in 1978, I authored a full-page article in Newsday, uh, which is a fairly large newspaper here in New York, uh, entitled Deregulation, Not the Route to Fly, and mentioned a lot of the facts that were brought up, uh, the fact that the smaller communities would lose service or they would have to be subsidized even more. And, and I wasn't alone. There were a lot of, a lot of really good people like uh, Bob Crandall from American who joined in, in in the battle against deregulation. But what Bob did was he realized with his computerized reservation system, I guess he sat down and had a uh, – you know, a man-to-man meeting or a man-to-woman meeting or whatever you want to call it uh, with his uh, head honchos, and they decided that the uh, computerized reservation system would resolve a lot of the problems, which it did, okay? But in my presentation to the – and I'd like to discuss this after I get done here. I'll try not to take up too much uh, more time. But in my presentation to the ALPA Board of Directors, um, I mentioned that, you know, it really it didn't take a, a great degree of intelligence to see that the result of airline deregulation would be either three or four mega carriers that would control the routes throughout the entire nation and perhaps throughout the world, uh, or we would, on the other hand, have an Amtrak of the sky where the U.S. government would subsidize the airlines like they do Amtrak. But just think about this in the context of what's gone on for the last month when President Trump now has promised $50 billion, would it be, dollars to the airlines because they've been hurt by the coronavirus. So, I mean, maybe we're looking down both barrels uh, no longer at three or four mega carriers, but at uh, U.S. government-subsidized uh, Amtrak of the skies. I don't know. I, I can't predict the future, but it's certainly – a step in that direction. And uh, it, it, another item that no one seems to want to address it, with airline dere- deregulation is flight safety. I mean, if you look um, at the not-too-distant past, Eastern Airlines was fined for uh, writing off repairs after Lorenzo took over the airline, or, or it might even been before that, I'm not sure, for repairs that were never made. Um, Southwest, the... Uh, darling of the low-cost carriers has been found to have cracks in its wing spars that went, you know, undetected during their maintenance procedures. A lot of the maintenance has been shipped offshore where the FAA can't uh, oversee it. I mean, these are items that no one wants to talk about. You know, everybody would like to speak about the cramped seating or having to pay 10 bucks or whatever it is to, uh, you know, to, to check a bag. Um, but there are there are other much larger items that are out there that the media and the of course the airlines themselves would rather not even look at or discuss. So uh, I don't agree with with the statement that deregulation has been an overwhelming success. I think it's been a success in certain areas, but those areas could have been addressed separately without going to the total deregulation. And if you recall, there are two items. The first was when deregulation was first introduced, it was supposed to be done over the course of a number of years. That that never happened. 
It was, according to Alfred Kahn, God rest his soul, may he be, well, I'm not going to go there. Um, but uh, in any case, it was such a, quote, success, unquote, that he sped up the whole process, okay? And the other thing was, if you recall, in a deregulation bill, if a carrier went out of business, the workers there, which would include, of course, the pilots, the you know, mechanics, the ground workers, the, the flight attendants, were supposed to go to another airline with their seniority intact. And that never happened in one case. So, I mean, you know, was a lot, there was a lot of smoke and a lot of mirrors, but not much of it ever came to fruition other than the fact that people can now sit in cramped seats and have, you know, $75 tickets from New York to Miami. But that, like I said, that could have been done despite this overall deregulation and the raping yeah. of the entire system. So anyway, I'll, I'll mm. leave it at that. Just a question, George. Uh, this is sure. Chuck. Uh, the cramped seating is, looks like it's going to go by the wayside if somebody jumps up and says you've got to have six feet between each person. <laughs> yeah, well. How do they do that in an airplane? <laughs> Well, hopefully that'll hopefully that'll be for a short period of time, but they could probably do that with the six feet per person, so long as Trump's giving them fifty billion dollars to make up for the money that they're losing. So you just book it to the point where everyone will have six feet of uh, room between them and the passenger, either in front, behind, or next to them. And you know, fifty billion dollars is a lot of money. It's going to be slipped separate in a lot of airlines too. too. Oh, you were broken up there. I said that oh, fifty billion nice. is going to have to be split up between a lot of airlines. Oh yeah, but you're correct. But you can assure that the four biggest ones are going to get the lion's share of that money. That's that's without that's a doubt. True. That is very true. You know, one of the one of the things that uh, I remember back in the '60s and uh, Jim and um, uh, those uh, Don, you recall about uh, Eastern putting in for different routes and how long it took the CAB to uh, act uh, to uh, give or not or deny uh, Eastern routes. And golly, how long did it take us to get to the West Coast? It took us forever. So that's one thing that was good about the deregulation, I think. Well, you, you're correct. Uh, Without a doubt, you're, you're correct. But the point is that all right, so if, if the problem is within the CAB, which it obviously was, why then would you would you deregulate the airlines rather than improving yeah. the efficiency yeah. of the CAB? That would be the logical thing exactly. to do. Exactly. But, but, it, yeah. but logic is something that our government seems to be lacking in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that well, goes along with common sense, I believe. Uh, what was that, Chuck? We finally made it. Chuck, go I ahead. said logic goes along with common sense. Doesn't seem to be much of that in Washington. Yeah. Not at all. Who was it? Who? You know, when the, when deregulation happened, I think George, you were right. It happened abruptly. I mean, in 1978, it was like you know, you passed through the door, and that was it. Um, Braniff, I remember Braniff, uh, with all of its colorful airplanes. 
just kind of shotgunning it through the air to destinations that uh, they only serve for a half hour a day or something like that. But, uh, you know, they just put an airplane in every airport they could find, I guess. Do you remember those days? Well, of, of course. Yes. And you see, that went that went to the belief that the uh, large, the mega carriers would be the ones that would be the controlling factor. I mean, look at it this way. If an airline has, let's say, for example, a thousand destinations, okay, and there's competition with a low-cost carrier on one or two of its routes, well, all they have to do is match or go lower than the uh, new entrant uh, on those routes, and then they can l- raise the fares, you know, a very small amount on the other routes to make up for that loss. And I believe that's what Howard Putnam believed when he did what he yeah. did with Braddock. But but l- let me throw out something else at you. When uh, New York Air, I don't know if you remember them, they were finally uh, taken over by Continental. Yeah. Right. They 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 competed with Eastern uh, on the shuttle routes, and uh, a bunch of Alpa members had picketed the um, uh, New York Air terminal at LaGuardia, which is the old Marine Air terminal on the other side of the airport. And I was there. I picketed that day, and lo and behold, who shows up? But Alfred Kahn. Okay. I don't know if he was still the chairman. I think he was a former chairman of the CAB at that time, and he's now on the board of directors of New York Air. Now, you talk about a conflict of interest. These are the type yeah. of sleaze bags that we had to put up with while they were destroying hundreds of thousands of lives uh, with their deregulation, and that's what it amounted to. I mean, we all know people, heck, everybody on this show was affected one way or another when Eastern went down the tubes, which was either a direct or an indirect result of airline deregulation. But, um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about a conflict of interest. The former CAB chairman is on the board of directors of a of, of New York Air, a startup carrier that was formed after deregulation, which that person put into effect. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, Neil, I want to say something. Uh, I did not realize uh, the guy who wrote this uh, thing that we did tonight was a lawyer, but it doesn't surprise me, and I'm glad to hear George give us that information. I but am too, Eastern, yeah. And, I, and I, what, why did he put that thing in there about uh, Frank Borman went down to put his ship or something like that? It seemed like maybe he was out there writing this article was the one he was really trying to get. But everyone should remember that Eastern Miami Florida to the northeast, we had that route when Pontius was a co-pilot, way back when. And what happened? Within two months, here's People's Express come cranking up, and they start flying down mm-hmm. on our route. We were, Eastern was hit harder by deregulation, I think, than any other yeah. airline. Well, that's Including the shuttle, you know, with New York Air. other airlines. Well, yeah, but Jim, you see, that goes to what I brought up before, and you're correct. The, the, new, the new carriers could compete based upon their labor costs. The, right. uh, mm-hmm. the pilots at People's Express were making less than half of what we did. If you mm-hmm. recall, Borman used to come to the MEC all the time and, and tout that, say, how can I compete with these people when mm-hmm. you folks are making X and they're making half of what you're making? And it, was, mm-hmm. it was unfair. It was, it was totally unfair. And that, that was... That was the problem with deregulation. And the way, you know, 
it didn't it didn't take place over the course of a number of years like it was supposed to. It was boom almost overnight. Right. Yeah. And and he was skating with Eastern and the Eastern pilots were at the bottom not at the very bottom. We were certainly down toward the bottom scale of the pay at that time. And here That's you correct. have people's express come in there and you know, making it even worse. Yep. Uh, I sort of wish I hadn't been on the show tonight. I'm depressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't be only because it was so many years ago. You know, hopefully, you know, we've all all gone on with our lives. But I can tell you that I know people who work for different airlines like Pan Am, Summit Eastern, that never got over what happened to them. I mean it's sad, but unfortunately it happened. Well, there are some things you, know, you just uh, can't get over because they were real to you. They weren't just a fake or you knew someone. It was you yourself that always hurts more and lasts longer, too. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, I was uh, I was in real estate just about all the time I was with Eastern Airlines. In fact, I was licensed in 63 when I went to work. One of the Eastern captains had a school, and I was licensed in Virginia, but uh, the deregulation of the banking institution uh, it was something that uh, happened about the same time. I don't think it happened the same year. It may have uh, Carter signing it, uh, but uh, you know, at one time before uh, deregulation, the Savings and Loan Association could only make long-term loans, and that's why they were doing the uh, the mortgages, whereas the commercial banks were doing short-term loans, boats and cars and that type of thing, because they could get their money in five years, and then all of a sudden regulation, deregulation happened, and the Savings and Loan Association really uh, suffered, and the commercial banks got into their territory and started to do the mortgages. So there, And there were other industries, too. But um, it's very interesting history about uh, regulation back in the old days. And I guess it started with the regulation of railroads. Uh, you ever read the book Atlas Shrugged by Ann Ann Ryan? I never read it, but I've heard about it. Yeah, it was uh, regulation of the uh, airline industry, and that was an interesting story. They made a... TV miniseries out of it, out of the book. Uh, I had my kids to read it. I thought it was so, so great about um, about the government and capitalism. Uh, one of the best books I think ever written. And uh, but at any rate, uh, yeah, George, you really opened up a uh, a lot of a lot of good points to be made about uh, the opposing regulation. I think even Frank Borman argued at Congress. I think all the airline presidents at the time, didn't they all go to Congress and say, yeah. no, you? I believe they and did. Borman yeah. was really opposed to it. Well, yeah. he wasn't that opposed to it because, well, that's another story, but I won't go into it. <laughs> oh, we got time, George. <laughs> well, for example, uh, he, if, you, if you recall, he formed a, uh, a, a deregulation committee that was comprised of Different Eastern workers from all the different departments, and uh, one of one of the uh, suggestions that was made was that they put my story, which was published in Newsday, uh, and which I got paid for, by the way, uh, into the Falcon, 
and uh, Borman vetoed the idea according to, I believe it was John Andrews who told me, because he didn't want to offend the politicians who were in favor of deregulation. So it never went into the Falcon. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but he he did uh, get up in front of Congress, our congressional committee, I should say, and voiced his opinion and said at that particular time that in his opinion, if this went through, there would only be five major airlines in the United States, and which came to uh, after a while, you had five major airlines, but Fortunately, or unfortunately, if you want to look at it, we have a lot of smaller airlines too. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't yeah. recall him making that. I don't recall him making, ever making that statement. But you know, it's been what forty-two years, so I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm going to have to look that up. Yes, definitely do it. Well, the airlines, uh, the manufacturers are really hurting now, uh, all of them, because of what uh, this virus has brought to the industry. And I just read uh, today uh, before the show that Boeing is uh, stopping uh, production of the 787 in Charleston, South Carolina. You guys were there when we had the convention. Uh, Jim, uh, Dorothy, John, we all went out to the plant. As a matter of fact, on uh, Yahoo, they the show a picture pilot. of that plant. Um, it was yeah. And uh, so they have stopped production because I guess South Carolina must have just signed uh, a bill keeping everybody at home. Mm. So, yeah, and then there was about eight of them left. It's eight, yeah. eight left. I know that they said that they were going to at least help the airlines now, so let's hope that Boeing is included because, you know, everybody seems to forget that way back then it wasn't the MCAS and they had a lot of great products that were around. And, you know, everybody starts to talk about things that happen in different parts of planes. Well, let's face it, no matter what you buy these days, you have something that falls apart and everybody says, well, we don't understand that. I mean, we made such a great product, but everybody has an issue at one point in their lives uh, in manufacturing and creating, and so they're no different to some extent. The only problem is that they had a, uh, a they really had a case of where they should have done more and didn't, and I'm sure they're paying for it dearly and. I don't think yeah. it will happen again. Well, guys, it was a very good discussion that we had tonight. I appreciate uh, um, all, all of um, what was said. And uh, we're going to, uh, right now, conclude that part and the program. And um, I think, Mark, I, I don't think we're going to have time for you unless you can just tell us uh, real quickly about what's happened with the new uh, Eastern Airlines and uh, probably not much of anything if I can get your thing to work here. Well, I'm having problems with your number, so uh, it's not uh, opening up. So sorry well, we about that. Have, we did have Eastern Airlines yeah. in Miami, uh, Neil. He did pick up the passengers. Yeah. 
that were uh, the well passengers that just had to keep a, uh, I guess they had to keep a 72-hour um, yeah. immunization before they get off. And they did, yeah. and they were picked up in Miami and brought to their homes, so, or to their local airports, I should say. Yeah. So we did have that, and uh, there are other things that I put up on the website from March on about New Eastern uh, doing a lot of uh, flights with the people on the that were trying to get home from March 13th on up until the time they couldn't. And they're still, as you know, working. They were trying to work Martinez issue, a member who got stranded over in South America. So they are trying to work out some of the issues that are around due to the COVID virus. And that's a big coup yeah. for them because uh, thankfully so they're doing something where some airlines have deceased doing that. Yeah, uh, Jim. Anything happening that we need to know about uh, the newsletter and Reba? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I sent an email out this morning to the group that I on my email list and uh, told them that we canceled the Reba luncheon tomorrow or day after tomorrow. No, it's tomorrow, uh, which is no surprise um, since we would all be sitting side by side in the Piccadilly. Uh, Jerry Frost yeah. did get the printed uh, newsletters today, and, uh, and, I'm, and she said they looked beautiful, which made me feel good because uh, I did have something to do with it, but mostly they looked beautiful because of our graphics designer, Kelly Frizzell, and uh, she came out out of the woods real quick and helped us get that thing and edited, get it over to the printing company in Douglasville. And we're going to mail it sometime uh, probably early May, depending on how things go. But I was going to send it out, like, this week. But we're not going to do that now. We're going to wait. And it concerns mainly the uh, Reaper reunion starting on uh, August 26th. At the Piccadilly, or not Piccadilly, at the uh, Kennesaw Embassy, Embassy Suite. Suite. Right. Yeah. That's about it. And uh, there'll be a lot more coming, and we hope to get the, those things in the mail maybe second week in May, depending on how things go. And he said it looked beautiful. Very good. Very. Uh, no color. I think you said it was black and white, wasn't it? Yeah, black and white. We didn't have any color. And it doesn't. There's a lot of stuff we had in there we don't have anymore. It uh, has a lot of pictures uh, of uh, items that are going to be up with a banquet auction uh, mainly contributed by some of the, quite a few of the Eastern family here in Atlanta. Some beautiful pictures, frame book pictures and other material. Are you still taking membership uh, applications uh, to get this newsletter or is it uh, everyone oh, that was yeah, a member yeah. before? We have three new members uh, in the, in the, in the uh, you know, we always put new members there and it was a uh, one of my classmates, Jack Trill Kill, Hood Manning, and Jimmy Stewart. You probably uh-huh. know Jimmy Stewart. Probably yeah, yeah, all sure. three of them. They yeah. just joined. And, uh, yeah. yeah, we take new members. Very good. Very good. Okay. Send well, me an email. Uh, Dorothy? Well, yeah, all right. Dorothy, what's happening? Uh, what's coming up real quickly before we sign off? Okay, we have uh, a membership. Uh, it's 1038. 
And we had another note from Mary Rivenbacher with the uh, member notice that we sent out uh, thanking us uh, and asking us all to please stay safe. And she sends her EAL hugs. We also want to thank our uh, sponsor, the Retired Eastern Airline Pilot Association, REPA, for the generous donation to keep us on the air. And their name is in our Platinum Falcon sponsor, and it's posted up on our website, as well as all our other Gold, Silver, and Falcon members, sponsors, our members who have uh, donated to us, and that they also can find up on our homepage under the Home Sponsor tab. And as I said, we have all the information on those two cruise ships and the Eastern Airlines, as well as about our member Eastern Airlines, is up in our article on the EAL LLC part of our website, and uh, our members uh, go to the testimonial and they'll read all about Martinez uh, stranded in Ushuaia, Argentina. Uh, these articles uh, are under Eastern Airlines. I've listed them all with notes. And um, to go back to our Thursday, we have our next show coming up, April 9th. Um, that's going to be with Captain Neil, and uh, Neil and I, uh, Don and I will join him, and Mike has at times, and some of the hosts, so we hope to see everyone. Um, the archive episodes are up on the EAL Reaper of the Reaper Radio Hour. Our first episode on will be at, on our blog, talkradio.com, Captain Eddie website. Our next program is uh, April 13th, The Novelty Songs of the Past, and April 20th will be the 10 Most Interesting Aviation Stories of 219. Don't forget, next week we have the uh, repartee and the uh, Monday show, as I said, Novelty. Coming up um, after that, we have many shows planned, so please uh, join us. Listen to our show on Mondays and Thursdays, and go to our website. That's what we created that for. You have a lot of time now to go up and listen to that with everything, some of the nice things that will make you happy and keep your memories of Eastern. Back to you, Neil. Well, looks like my uh, board has stopped working here. It oh. kicked me off about a half hour ago, and I'm on my cell phone and not on the, the normal uh, radio. So I've been on my cell phone. But the cell phone's working pretty good. I might have to uh, have that as uh, standard equipment instead of what Blog Talk Radio is is uh, cutting me out. From time to time, and now I'm trying to open up microphones, and I can't open up microphones. So I don't know what the heck is going on. It's got a virus, I guess. (laughs) Sound like a landing of an airplane, then. (laughs) Yeah. Well, every time I click on that landing of the airplane, it uh, it throws another uh, a little round circle saying that it's trying to get the song up and play it, but it's not going to do it. So I don't know whether we're going to be able to play Silver Wings, and uh, but we're going to try to do that. Uh, and then, Chuck, uh, how about taking us out of here? Okay. 
Well, be sure to tune in next Monday, April 13th, when America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyberways and listen to some great Eastern music and history. You'll laugh as you recall the novelty songs we heard way back when. Our producer is telling me it's time to say goodbye. This is Chuck Albright signing off on behalf of our host, Dorothy, Don, Jim Holder, Carrie Holder, Mike Scott, and we appreciate George Jen coming in tonight, and we might have a, our next uh, person who will come in next week, hopefully, is uh, Jim. He's back, uh, he's healed up and back and raring to go, so we'll uh, see how he, how he can make next week's program. Well, I can't sing sir, uh, Silver Wings too good, so I don't have a guitar. <laughs> so, silver Wings. So good night, well, we can Eastern be like the Walters and around the world. Yeah. And good night, Eastern Airlines, wherever you are. We love you, Eastern. Good night, Thank Eastern. you, everybody. That's, that's, we had a great show. Good night. That's great. Good night, good night. Thanks, good night everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. And we're going to sign off right now. I can't even sign off. It won't let me. <laughs> what you mean is we're going just on with this thing? Yeah, it, it, it. Oh, there it is. It finally came up. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>